Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, we're continuing our series uh, today, His Story or God's Story with the Human Family, and I've entitled our message, When God Turns the Tables. And this is actually one of the, one of the greatest Bible stories uh, in the Old Testament we're going to look at today. We use a phrase to turn the tables in uh, modern English, and I assume that it exists in many other cultures as well. And it obviously refers to some sort of reversal of fortune or direction. Uh, Some say it might be a a metaphor for a comeback. The tables are turned. And its origins are a little speculative. Uh, Some people say it's from when you turn a backgammon uh, board around so that players trade positions. So there's a total change in position that results. The losing person becomes the winning person. It's turning the tables. But interestingly... There is a Bible verse that uses this. It's all the way back in the book of Esther. It's not what we're going to preach on today, but Esther chapter 9, verse 1, actually uses this phrase, which means this phrase existed all the way back in ancient Persia. It's an ancient concept, and it was a moment in Esther when God's people had a reversal of fortune. So the nation of Israel had already been birthed, and they're actually in captivity during this time. They were under foreign rule, Persian rule, and they were about to experience genocide as they're dominated by a foreign power. And they were given permission to defend themselves and survive. And that day, they defeated their enemies all across the ancient Persian Empire. And the next day in Israel is known as the Feast or the Holiday of Purim. God turned the tables. It's in the Bible. It's also in the story we're going to look at today, not the phrase, but that concept. Listen to this example from my former hometown in Minnesota. Is this God turning the tables? Over 100 years ago, a tornado struck the prairies of Minnesota. Many people were killed. Hundreds were injured. And one small town was almost demolished. In the midst of the disaster, an elderly British surgeon and his two medically trained sons worked almost around the clock for days, aiding the stricken, bandaging wounds, and setting broken limbs from this tornado. Their heroic work did not go unnoticed. Their excellence as physicians and their selflessness in the service of those in need created a following among the tornado victims. The doctor and his sons were offered financial backing to actually stay there and build a hospital provided that they would actually take charge of that hospital. The men agreed, and in 1889, founded a clinic that soon attracted national attention in the States, and their little clinic grew. The city was Rochester, Minnesota. The elderly doctor's name was William Mayo. It became the Mayo Clinic. His sons were William J. and Charles. Their clinic is simply called the Mayo Clinic. It now consists, now they're saying 500 physicians. I can tell you when I lived in Rochester, there were 7,000 to 10,000 physicians because it was also a training school. So there were probably more doctors in Rochester, Minnesota than any place in the world per capita, a town of about 100,000, 120,000. 
And they would serve hundreds of thousands of people a year. And eventually they had clinics in Jacksonville, Florida, Scottsdale, Arizona. And it's known worldwide as one of the premier places of health, healing, and excellence in medicine. I'm sure if you asked the citizens of Minnesota about the Rochester tornado at the time, they would have said it was about death and destruction. It was a disaster. People died. But put in the perspective of better than a century and in the hands of a creative God, the tornado was really about life, about help, about healing, about a positive change in that part of the country. So the question I want to ask from that kind of story and the kinds of stories like that that happen in our lives, and they do, is what if God is able to take a natural disaster or a bad choice that you made or the sins and choices of others that are made against you or your worst experience regardless of its origin? The thing that has hurt your life. And turn the tables. Reverse its impact. And actually take it and turn it into good. Once in a while, we get to see that. And when we do, when you experience something like that, it changes your view of God. It gives hope for every future because it sort of teaches us that when, when God can do that, when he can take the worst experiences of our lives and somehow turn them into good, it means that no experience, no life is ever really like out of it. You know, God can take some stuff and, and move it around and, and create a comeback in our lives in ways that we may not expect. And today we find Joseph in exactly that kind of situation. And I want to read with you Genesis chapter 45. Now, if you recall, when I was here a couple weeks ago, we were preaching uh, Genesis 39 was the chapter we were in, I believe. So we're skipping a couple of chapters. But we're not. We're going to talk through those stories. Those stories are all a part of Genesis 45. So I'll be talking about them in the sermon here. If it scares you that I'm preaching through five chapters, it should. Genesis chapter 45 is on page 35 in the Bible in front of you. Page 35 right at the bottom and then it'll turn to page 36. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers couldn't answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Remember, they had sold him into slavery about 25 years before this and thought he was probably dead. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over the land of Egypt." 
Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall, not, you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. And there I will also provide for you, there, for there are still five years of famine to come, and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen. You must hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Now the reason these two have a connection is they're the two sons of, um, of the one wife. Now, this is a pretty dysfunctional family. There were multiple wives in this family. They're the two sons of the one wife. They're brothers. He kissed all his brothers and wept on them and afterward his brothers talked with him. Now when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan and take your father and your household and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are ordered, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourself with your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel, which is another word for Jacob, Jacob was also his name, did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. Just two points in this passage, but this is quite a story. God often weaves the circumstances of life, even evil, toward our good and his cause. Now this is one of the great stories from the Bible. And we've been studying what we've called his story. And what we mean is God's story with early man and early nations. And lately we've been in Joseph's life. But I want to remind you of who Joseph is and why we're in Joseph's life and how we got there. So in Genesis chapter, you know, you have creation, you have the fall, you have the flood. Those are in early Genesis. When you get to Genesis chapter 11, you have the scattering of nations. When you have the scattering of nations, then right after that, in Genesis chapter 12, all the way to the end of the Old Testament, it's about Israel. It's about the nation of Israel. Because Israel had a special place in God's economy, if you will, in the Old Testament. So God is creating a plan now where he says, since the nations are scattered around the world, I want to have a nation that represents me. I will give that nation my truth, my covenant. They will be a light to the world. But to get that nation, you have to have a man, sort of a founder. And so Abraham is that man. So God's new revealed kingdom plan is, I'm going to take a man, his name is Abraham, I'm going to turn him into a nation, that nation will be blessed by God if they obey me. If they don't obey me, I'll withdraw that blessing. They will be a light to the world, and the prophets called them a light to the Gentiles, a light to the rest of us. And a savior would also come from that nation. So that's sort of God's Old Testament plan to give truth to the world. So Genesis, which means beginnings, is following, it's tracing the early clan leaders that are going to become this nation. So it traces uh, basically Abraham and then his son Isaac and his son Jacob and then the 12 uh, sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. And now we're talking about Joseph and Joseph is prominent in this part of the book. When you get to the end of the book, you've basically got a large clan and then the book of Exodus opens with a couple million people. Now, so Joseph, 
is the subject late in Genesis, about 13 chapters around his life. And he has had a terrible run. He was born, we might say, with a a silver spoon in his mouth. He was the favorite child, the favorite son, and unfortunately, this is a bad parenting situation and be a great sermon about bad parenting. That's not necessarily the, the authorial intent of the passage, but it illustrates it beautifully. So Jacob had multiple wives. We know he had two wives and they had two servants who also had children through him. I'm not saying it's okay. That's not what the sermon's about. But he ended up with a very dysfunctional situation. We have competition in the family. You have sets of sons from four different women, and one of them's the favorite wife, which means you have favorite sons. This was a disaster waiting to happen. Total dysfunction. Joseph is the favorite son. Daddy gave him a special little robe that even signified that he would be the leader of the clan and he was the favorite son. And that distinction cost him his life because his brothers hated him. So out in the pastures one day, preached about this a few weeks back, jealous brothers hatched a plan. Some wanted to kill him, just kill him and throw him in a dry well. But a couple others had a little more reason, a little more compassion. They said, let's just tie him up, throw him in the well, And then when some traders came by headed to Egypt, they said, let's sell him. We'll never hear from him again. We'll tell dad he's dead. So they threw him in a dry well. When traders came by to Egypt, he was pulled out of the well, probably bound and caged, and he sold to traders on the way to Egypt. They took his special little robe. They dipped it in goat's blood or lamb's blood. They brought it back to dad and said he was killed by a lion or a bear. And dad believed it. And that was probably 25 or so years, plus or minus, before today's story. Now the princely Joseph seems far from the promises and presence of God. But the last time we were together, God began to show up in some amazing ways. Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt. When he gets there, we don't know if he ends up in, in sort of a public you know, slave trading situation or if these Midianite traders knew what Potiphar wanted, but he was sold to Potiphar's household. Potiphar was an Egyptian leader. He was the head of the prison system for the palace. He knew the Pharaoh personally. He buys Joseph. And in chapter 39, we see that Joseph, even in this horrible situation in slavery in a foreign country, wondering whether God's promises followed him there, assuming they probably didn't, he begins to rise in importance in Potiphar's house. And everything he touches turns to gold. He is the golden child. He is the master investor. Everything he touches in Potiphar's business life turns to gold. And so Potiphar is enriched because God is blessing this young man. God's presence has followed him. God's promises have followed him. Now he's still a slave in Egypt, but he's rising in importance. Potiphar's wife notices him. She tries to seduce him. He rejects her. She lies about the incident. Claims sort of a rape situation. Joseph is jailed in the royal prison, the one that Potiphar oversees at some level. But even there, God's promises are with him. So now he's a slave who's been accused of rape or attempted rape, and he's a prisoner, and yet 
he can't get away from the promises of God. You would think God would, you know, if he really loves them, would free him, but God doesn't, but God is with them. And now in jail, everything he touches turns to gold. By the time you get to the end of chapter 39, he's running the prison. Kind of like the inmates are running the asylum. He was running the prisoner. He's a prisoner running the prison. And the chief jailer put him in charge of everything. And the Bible keeps saying in chapter 39, God was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph in all he did. The Lord blessed Potiphar because of Joseph. The Lord blessed the chief jailer because of Joseph. God's promises followed him. And God was setting the stage to turn the tables in Joseph's life. Chapter 40, which we haven't looked at. Joseph is in prison. Now he's running the place. He's in prison, though, and he's a slave. Two palace workers offend the pharaoh or the king. They end up in the prison with Joseph. Now they are the cupbearer and the baker. Now the cupbearer would be the person who would test the king's food to make sure that it wasn't poisoned, and so it was an important official in the king's court. And the baker was important because he made food for the king. I'm not sure exactly what happened with the baker. There's something in the Hebrew text about carrot cake. I'm not sure what that means. I get it, though. If he tried to put carrot cake in front of the pharaoh, I'd throw him in prison, too. Did we have carrot cake at our wedding? We didn't. Okay, but I think you wanted it. Okay, anyway. Anyway, I, just the fact that you wanted it, I still think we actually had it. But carrot cake, it's a horrible idea. But anyway, so he's in prison for the carrot cake incident. The cupbearer and the baker. Both of them have dreams on the same night. Both of them have dreams. And they don't understand what their dreams mean. Joseph has this supernatural gift from God to interpret dreams and visions. So they go to Joseph. And Joseph says, I'd be happy to listen to your dreams. Maybe I can help you out. Interpretations come from God in that situation. And he listened to their dreams, and he said to the one, to the baker, because of the carrot cake, your dream means you're going to be executed. In three days. And in three days, he was executed over carrot cake. To the the cupbearer, he said, your dream means you're going to be restored. And he said, when you are restored, please remember me. Be gracious to me for helping you in this situation if this comes true. And he was restored. But he didn't help Joseph. He forgot about Joseph. But the only reason that chapter is there, and that was pretty fast uh, preaching through a chapter, hey? Two minutes. The only reason that chapter is there is because God is setting the stage to turn the tables. God is setting the stage to turn the tables in Joseph's life. He hasn't forgotten about him. Circumstances are moving. Chapter 41. Pharaoh has a dream or a vision from God. And his dream says, in his dream, he said that there were, there were seven fat cows down by the Nile in the marsh, feeding lush grass. Beautiful pasture. And Pharaoh's having this nice dream. He's thinking of you know, his favorite pastime, going down by the Nile, and watching the water, and there's cattle feeding. And then in his dream, Seven skinny cows come out of the Nile and they devour the seven fat cows. And after they do it, they're still skinny. And 
his dream sort of turns into this bizarre, you know, cannibalistic cow nightmare. And he wakes up. Well, he doesn't wake up. He has another dream right away. And in that dream, seven plump ears of grain. We kind of want to say corn in the Western world a little bit. We don't know that it's corn. I don't know if they had corn in ancient Egypt or not. But seven plump ears of grain grow on one stalk, which is unusual. And then seven thin scorched ears devour them. And so it's the same kind of thing. Seven fat cows eaten by seven skinny cows. Seven, seven heads of grain on one stalk eaten by seven thin ears of grain. All the normal magicians and wise men were summoned to, to hear these dreams and to get the meaning. Nobody knew. But guess what? The cupbearer who had been imprisoned with the baker, with the carrot cake baker, the cupbearer remembered there is a guy in prison and he interprets dreams. And so Joseph was summoned. He's 13 years into his Egyptian experience, all of it in slavery, most of it or much of it in prison. And he's remembered because of God orchestrating these circumstances. And he's brought in and he's cleaned up and he's made to look like an Egyptian and he interpreted the dreams. He said to Pharaoh, these are really one dream. They're the same dream. They're common. They're the same. And God gave it to you twice to show that it really is God and it's really going to happen. He said Egypt is going to have seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. The seven fat cows are the seven years of abundance. The seven skinny cows, the seven years of famine. The same with the grain. He said, it's the same dream. And he said, Egypt must prepare for it. And he actually made a sort of a, a bit of a, of a proposal for policy. He said, what Egypt needs here, Pharaoh, mighty Pharaoh, she needs a seven-year, 20% grain tax to survive the next 14 years. You've got seven years of plenty. You need to tax those seven years of plenty by getting 20% of everything that's brought in to take you through the next seven years, which will be a horrible famine. Pharaoh is incredibly impressed. And he's asking questions like, because Joseph says you need to find somebody to put in charge of this, pro uh, this project. Joseph has won his confidence. And Pharaoh says, where can we get somebody in whom is... The, like a spirit of the gods, or we might say the spirit of God. I don't know that he was thinking of our God, so he probably didn't mean it that way. But in whom is a divine spirit? He says that. Where can we find a man in whom is a divine spirit? In fact, it's the only patriarch where something like that is said of him, and it's said by a pagan emperor. Joseph was a good guy. He was a bit of a punk at 17, but he's a good man now. Joseph has won his confidence. He is promoted on the spot to second only to the throne. Think about that. The slave, the prisoner, cleaned up for maybe a matter of hours, is promoted to second only in Egypt. He is renamed Zaphnathathpaneah, a great boy's name if you're pregnant. Zaphnathpaneah. And he is given Asenath as a wife, the daughter of the priest of An, I believe. He was 30. He's gone from a slave in prison to second in command to married to a royal young lady. He's 30. 
He was 17 when this mess started. Imagine what's going on in Joseph's heart at that moment. All of the heartbreak, all of the questions about whether God was with him, all of the questions about whether there was any hope for a future, all of it, all of the doubt, legitimate doubt, being abandoned by God in his life in another country. And now he sees how it's come together. He sees God's hand. And at 30 now, he's elevated. He has two boys with Aseneth. We know them as a couple of the inheritors of the promised land. Manasseh, which means making to forget, and Ephraim, which means fruitful. In other words, he, he's recognizing God's activity in his life. I'm, I'm going to read the text so you see it a little more clearly. In chapter 41, verse 51, Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. You know, so he's married, has this boy maybe a year or two later, so he's now a year or two into his official position coming out of prison. God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. I've been able to put my family behind me, my brothers who sold me into slavery, and my trouble. And he named the second Ephraim. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. He's recognizing the hand of blessing in his life. Joseph is beginning to heal. God is turning the tables already and God is setting the stage to turn the tables in a way that's almost hard to imagine. Chapters 42 to 44. Now it's going to get interesting. Egypt has grain. We're through the seven years of plenty. We're into the first year of famine. Egypt has grain in the middle of a massive multi-year famine that's covering multiple continents. Other nations are starting to come to Egypt for grain because they hear that Egypt has grain. Guess who's coming to dinner? Joseph's brothers are now coming from the Middle East down to Egypt for grain. From the, just the east of the Mediterranean down to Egypt, it's not that far. It's the natural place to come for grain in this famine. So Joseph's brothers are going to come for grain, and Joseph is the primary grain dealer, second in charge in Egypt in charge of everything except the throne. He's now 40-ish, maybe 45. Now I want you to think about this because we tend to compress this story way too much. Life doesn't work that way. We compress this in our minds too much. Do the math. He's 40 to 45. He was 30 when he was released from prison. 17 when he went to Egypt. 30 he's released from prison and he's elevated. He's had a couple of baby boys since then. That takes some time usually nine months each, plus a little in between. Then there's seven years of plenty where they've had great crops and they've been saving up 20% grain tax. Now we're into one to two years of famine. The story I read today, we're in the second year of famine. But when this starts, we're in the first year of famine. The brothers start coming down. Joseph is not, you know, we often think of this story, it's like, well, why didn't they just recognize him? They threw a 17-year-old in a pit. He's, he's, you know, he's older, he's got a different body type, he's been lifting weights, probably shaves his head. <laughs> he's a good-looking dude. Where was I? I'm sorry. 
He looks different. It's 25 years later. The Bible says he disguised himself a bit to make sure they wouldn't recognize him. And when you read chapters 42 to 44, it's interesting because he did mess with them a little bit. He did put them through some tests. He actually kind of set them up as thieves and put some some silver articles from Egypt into their sacks of grain and made it look like they stole. And he tried to test the brothers to see how they would handle his little brother, Benjamin, if he wanted to sort of use Benjamin as a piece of ransom and so on. He tested them. And I don't think it was all ill will. Eventually he saw the same brothers who had sold him into slavery were acting selflessly and were unwilling to harm his little brother. So he was, even though it looks like he's messing with them, it was sort of a moral test to see how they would treat his little brother Benjamin and whether they had changed. And eventually, I think during their second or third trip down to Egypt now, he broke down in their presence. And he kicked all of the Egyptians out of the room. And he began to weep so loud that all the Egyptians heard him weeping. It didn't matter if they were in the room or not. Everyone heard him. And he revealed his identity to his brothers. And he said this. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? His brothers, when they heard that, could not answer him. Because they're thinking, we're dead. And they should be. Joseph said to his brothers, come closer to me. And they came closer. I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. You didn't skip it. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. Because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. There's still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Wow. Wow. I'm not that good. Say, wait, he was assaulted and sold twice. He was accused of sexual assault, thrown in prison for it, could have been killed for that one. He's lost his future. He was the golden boy, had the special little robe. Granted, he wasn't easy to deal with. He was a little arrogant. But he was the golden boy, set up to be the leader of the clan, He lost his future. He lost his freedom. He lost his country. As far as he knew, God's promises didn't go outside the promised land. He lost his family. He lost everything because of the actions of those 11. But in the hand of God, who operates outside of time, 
who sees the rise and fall of nations, who sees famines in the distant future, who orchestrates dreams and visions all around Joseph, who needed to rescue a fledgling clan in order to make them a nation, to be a light to the world, to give us a savior, that God who's orchestrating all of this, who had promised Joseph as a boy that he would bless him greatly, to that God, Slavery was no barrier to a bright future. Prison was no barrier. Distant lands were no barrier. And taking the lowest person in Egypt to second in command to rescue his people and bring a Messiah into this world was not even a little challenge for a sovereign, all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful God who governs this universe and your life. And in case you're wondering, he hasn't changed. God often weaves the circumstances of life, even evil, towards our good and his cause. Second, Joseph recognized the hand of God in all of it, allowing him to heal and to further advance God's plan. Joseph is, and we read it, shockingly changed once he sees the big picture. And I'm sure Moses, with the authorial intent of this book he put together here that Moses edited and wrote under the guidance of the Spirit of God, wants us to see that. He wants us to see the change in Joseph's life and how Joseph sees that this is God's hand in the big picture. Listen to these words. Imagine yourself having been wronged like this, but listen, listen to these words. Don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Wow. God sent me before you. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant and to keep you alive. Now therefore, he says, which means he's now having a deduction in logic. He's saying, now therefore, it was not you who sent me here but God. Now I'm going to respectfully disagree with him for a couple of reasons. I actually think he's technically, theologically inaccurate. I hate to argue with the Bible, but I'm not arguing with God's word. I'm arguing with his view of things, okay? Because God doesn't cause sin or evil. James 1 makes it very clear. God didn't make the brothers do that. God doesn't do that. God doesn't cause evil. Or else we got some problems with God and his character. So I actually don't agree with how Joseph phrased it, but he sees God as so significantly using all the circumstances that he just says, well, let's just say God did this because the reality is, even though you sold me into slavery, look at how God's used it. God's clearly in all this. God sees the whole system, all of it. God was never surprised. He operates outside of time. He knew what was going to happen. The situation was never lost. Joseph was never lost. Joseph was never alone. And now to Joseph, it all made sense. And even if God, if you, want, if you have a very Calvinistic view of reality and you think God is behind all things, good and evil, knock yourself out. Even if God was or wasn't the primary mover or actor, he made it all make sense. And Joseph now gets it and it heals him and he rescues all. All of them. And then they're restored to one another. They move to Goshen. 
Pharaoh treated them well. He enriched them. He supplied the journey, the relocation. And Jacob heard perhaps 25 years after the crime when he was sold by his brothers, Jacob, dad, heard that his son lives. And he rules Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. God really turned the tables on that one, didn't he? Wow. Just a couple apps as we close. Number one, don't lose heart. Life is a long time and God has not left you. Joseph's life was over at 17. By every definition, his life was over. He was sold into slavery to a foreign land in an ancient world without human rights. You know, there's no international pressure on Egypt in that time in history for emancipation of people like Joseph. His life was over. But God never left him. And even early on, there was evidence of God's presence. When he landed in Potiphar's house as a slave and everything he touched turned to gold. When he was falsely accused of attempted rape and he ends up in prison and everything he touches turns to gold. And then he can interpret dreams. Everything he touches turns to gold. Yet for 13 years, he is languishing. It was unjust. It was terrible. It was tragic. He is a prisoner and a slave. But God never left him. Life was a long time. And God had time to turn the tables. Now, none of us are Joseph. None of us have experienced everything Joseph experienced. But some of us have experienced some pretty bad stuff where we really wonder if we're on our own in this world or if God really has remembered us. Some of us have experienced that. And some of us are hoping for the redemption side of this, the comeback, where some things get better and God shows up in a different way. Some of us are living that. I'm kind of living one of those stories right here a little bit. I won't get into it because I can't be nearly as charitable as Joseph was. But I'm living it little bit. Some of you are living it a little bit. God hasn't changed. He doesn't leave us. He doesn't. Don't lose heart. Life is a long time and God has not left you. He's not left your story. It's not finished. Second, God has everything he needs at his disposal to turn the tables in your life no matter the situation. I mean, Joseph was, that's quite a comeback story because it looks like there's just no way that can turn around. Only 12 years old, this was in Yahoo News a number of years ago, only 12 years old and in a moment, one Ethiopian girl's world turned into a nightmare. Seven violent men abducted her, she was preteen, intending to force her into marriage, which is part of the culture there. They held the girl for seven days, they beat her, such incidents are common in Ethiopia as several men band together to abduct young girls for the purpose of securing brides. The girls are typically beaten into submission and raped. In this particular instance, there was not a human being within earshot to hear her cries, but her cries were heard. The unlikely heroes were three 
majestic Ethiopian lions. Famous for their large black manes, these lions are the national symbol of the country. And in response to her cries for help, three large lions leapt from the brush and chased these young men away. Perhaps the child thought she had traded one danger for another, but remarkably, her heroes, these three lions, formed a protective perimeter around her, and a half day later, the police arrived. The guardian lion simply stood up and walked away when the cops showed up. Sergeant Wandimu Udajo said, they stood guard until we found her, and then they just left her like the gift and went back into the forest. What's my point? God has everything at his disposal to change whatever situation he wants to. God sees outside of time. He is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-wise and ever-present. And though there are times where it feels like he doesn't act like it, we're like, we're on our own in the bush. God can rescue a little girl in the bush with a trio of lions. He can do whatever he wants to change your situation. He's got everything at his disposal. And third, God's ways are beyond ours. Don't expect to be able to perfectly interpret your journey. In a book, Truth Matters, Confident Faith in a Confusing World, the writer says this. Think of it this way. A basketball coach could call a timeout for any number of reasons at any different point in the ballgame. The NBA season just started this last week, so it's time for basketball illustrations. More football illustrations are coming as well. Not a lot of carrot, not a lot of carrot cake, but just the one. We might see a flaw in the opponent's defense, for example, that he thinks his team could exploit with a hastily designed play, so he calls a timeout. He might want to stop a flurry of momentum or a hot hand by one of the opposing players, so he calls a timeout. He might use it to try icing a free throw shooter. He might use it to stop the clock near the end of the half or regulation. He might use it to force an instant replay review of a questionable call by the officials. That's six different options right there why a coach might call a timeout. They're all determined not by fixed you know, uh, algorithms, but by the flow of the game, the nature of the opponent, the time left on the clock or the game clock or any of these factors. Many others could dictate the purpose in asking for a stoppage in play. Plus, it's all dictated by the coach's unique personal knowledge of his players, his awareness of what each of them can do and what makes them perform best, what puts them in the best position to win the game. That's just a coach calling a timeout. Why would God's decisions for our lives be any different. You know, God's a sovereign God. We're living this life. Stuff happens. and we, we just think somehow we should be able to understand it all. Why, why would we? Why would we? Why would we? God's ways are beyond ours. Don't expect to be able to perfectly interpret your journey. But when it's not going well, and it looks like life is in the wrong direction. And you've got, not the equivalent of, but sold into Egypt, dealing with prison, long way from home, long way from God. None of us have experienced that. But when life is going the wrong direction, it looks like God has left you. Have some faith. God can turn it around. He's got a history of doing that. Your story is not over. Life is a long time. He's God. He's got you. Trust him. God, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for this example of 
you being the hero on these pages of Scripture, as you are. In fact, that's one of the great ways to interpret Scripture. How is God the hero on this page? How is God showing up? What is God doing? And in this passage, you clearly have not left Joseph. You are with him. Even when it doesn't look like you're with him a lot, even when the circumstances don't change for many years, you're with him. And then you really come through. God, in all of our lives, when we face difficulty, that's, that's what we're hoping for. We're hoping for a comeback like that. We're hoping that you'll turn the tables on something that's happened in our lives. And I pray that for everybody here who's hurting in some way that, that you would do that, that we would have a sense of your presence, that would see you move in our lives, move in the circumstances around our lives that cause us pain and that, that you would show up mightily. Thank you that you are God, you're capable of that. We know we live in this broken world where it doesn't always happen and you don't always do what we want. And that's why heaven's a better place, but thank you for those moments where you do. And I pray that you would for each of us, in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.